welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thy will not mind be done. I'm Steve. I'm a psychologist. Thanks for coming out tonight. Uh, this afternoon, um, I am wearing a suit. Why am I wearing a suit? A um, couple reasons. When the men who sponsored me, uh, one of them is currently sponsoring me. Others have passed and sponsored me. When they were invited to speak in public for an AA or SA event, they would wear suits. Um, and I understand that this is a tradition among certain lineages in AA. I don't know. I imagine probably going back to Dr. Bill, uh, Dr. Bob and Bill. Um, and so it impressed me. I never saw them in suits except when they were uh, giving AA talks. And I remember when I was little, I, you know, had to wear a tie or dress up for, for church or something like that. And I was like, why do I have to? Well, you have to look your best for, for God. And so that that um, re- resonated with me that my sponsors did that. And so I do that. And as I was, uh, you know, just the suit needed dry clean. I haven't worn it in like 18 months. And so I got it dry clean this week. And as I was, um, I picked it up this morning. And um, I said, I, I think I'm supposed to wear that tonight. Um, and as I was putting it on this evening or this afternoon, I realized that this is the sort of suit that I wore in court at my sentencing here. And uh, same tie, same shirt, same suits, uh, probably different socks and shoes, gratefully. Um, and you may notice that I look a little like I'm popping out of it a little bit. I think I'm a little heavier than I was 13 years ago. But... Um, that's an important thing for me to remember, you know. That's part of why I do this or part of how I came to be doing this. And, and what, it, what I do today is different than I did in the years before that sentencing hearing was that I, um, I don't live my life for me. I don't think of my life as something that belongs to me today. Um, I tried that, and it doesn't seem to work. And I've looked at the third step prayer, you know, numerous times with other men. I've said it myself. I don't know when it finally hit me. I think I'd heard other people say it for several times. One of my old sponsors says a revelation is when I finally, uh, when I figure out something all by myself that you've been trying to tell me for six months or longer. And and I had a revelation about the third step, and that, that is that... 
if I've taken a third step, a sincere third step, my will and my life no longer are my property. And um, uh, what does that mean? If, if I turn my car over to you uh, and give you the deed to the car and the keys, then it is no longer my car. And if you allow me to keep it in my possession, then um, you are, you know, it's still my car while it's in my possession. And that's how I view my life today. So my time is not my property. My money is not my property. Um, my relationships are not my property. The people I care about are not my property. And my essay story is not my property. So I feel obliged when called upon to do so, to share my story uh, in the sincere hope that God can use it to, to help other people. Now, how did I get from there to here? Um, well, I guess what I want to talk about a little bit is my early sobriety. One of the things that uh, got, uh, led to me getting up here today um, was that some of the men I sponsor are sponsoring men who are who are having trouble getting sober, and uh, um, you know I think there's things in our literature that we can look at very carefully um, and find that there is a way uh, to get sober in SA even if we're having trouble, and and so I I felt led to to you know look at the white book. I got a sponsor in Nashville named Bill, and Bill and I. Um, uh, went through the big book together on the phone. We we have a phone call on Wednesday nights. And we went through the big book, and when we got through with the big book, we decided we wanted to go through the white book. And we're in the white book right now. And um, I talked to him about this, and actually the very part that we were reading from was the part that, that I had felt led to talk about. So that's what I want to do. Um, I believe, Lauren, uh, thank you for uh, working it out with the church to get this space for the first Saturday of every month. So I'm going to do this, you know, uh, and, and see, what, see what God wants to do with it. Um, so I guess as far as the, book, the white book goes, I want to start with uh, page 77. And I encourage you to follow along with your book. Um, my sponsor was 25 years sober in AA, my former sponsor. And I would go to our home group. And at the beginning of the meeting, I saw him with a big book, open to page 58, reading along as the person who was leading the meeting read how it works. Now, he had been in thousands of AA meetings. He probably had How It Works memorized. Why was he following along in the book? Well, he was following along in the book because he doesn't need to become an expert in this program. Um, and so I learned that I don't need to be an expert in this program. I have read the problem, the essay problem, you know, or heard it read thousand, uh, probably a thousand or more times. And there have been times that I have read it. There have been times I've heard it read. You know, not not every time, 
But I have heard something for the first time that I have never heard before. It's always been there, but I didn't hear it. In terms of the big book, my sponsor, my old sponsor, called this fresh ink. You know, he was facetiously implying that somebody had come in and changed it when he wasn't looking, which uh, is, is very funny when he says it because he's got a good sense of comedic timing and I don't. But but um, uh, it's true. This is not uh, a newspaper. It's not about information. You read it, newspaper, it's old news. You don't need it anymore. You can throw it away. You've read it. This is not information in the same way. <clears throat> this is spiritual literature, and spiritual literature, I have an encounter when I read spiritual liter- literature, and the content of the literature encounters me where I am today. Uh, so this works with many things. There have been speakers that that I, um, you know, have heard, you know, either in person or on a tape, and I've said, I don't know what the big deal about that guy is. Everybody says he's great, but I just don't get it. And I go listen to what I listened to, you know, what I thought was worth listening to. A few years later, I would come back and hear one of those CDs. Blow me away. There was something, you know, some same old talks. You know, the talks from, I mean, the recordings sometimes are, you know, they're classics that are passed around for decades. I've got some of those. They've been very helpful to me. And, you know, I don't hear or see certain things until I'm ready. And, and that path is different for everyone. So I have found certain things that I love that have spoken to me. Other, somebody else that I, with good recovery that I really respect will listen to it and say, doesn't do anything for me. And, and the reverse is true. You know, they, they've said, oh, this is great. Got to listen to it. And I listen to it and I say, no thanks. But, you know, this is God as, as we understand Him. Everybody has an experience of God. Uh, and um, how am I supposed to relate to Him today? That's a question I have to... I, I, there's lots that I could say about, but I want to also listen to others talk about their experience and, and to realize, you know, I may not re- be ready to hear everything I'm going to hear or, or see, you know, see everything I'm going to see. So, um, with that in mind, I want to turn to page 77 in the white book. And um, can I have a volunteer to read? If you want, you can come up here, or if you want, you can sit where you are. If you, if you sit where you are, speak a little loud so, so the recording might pick it up. Anyone? Okay. recording. Lawrence Hitzolik, How It Works, The Practical Reality. This title is adapted from Chapter 5 of Alcoholics Anonymous, entitled How It Works. The books Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, the 12 and 12, constitute the basic text of the original 12-step program. This section is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition of the steps. Our aim here is to try to get at the essential purpose of each step, or group of steps, so they can be readily put into action. The essay program is a program of action. Everything begins with sobriety. Without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. But without reversing the deadly traits that underlie our addiction, there is no positive and lasting sobriety. 
to recover from a life based on wrong attitudes, self-obsession, separation, false connections, blindness, and spiritual death requires a program of action that includes a fundamental change in attitude, character change, union, the true connection, self-awareness, and spiritual life. Working the principles of the steps as a new way of living has made this happen for us. No matter how well they are explained, understood, or believed, however, the steps mean nothing unless they are actually worked out in our thinking and living. The steps don't work unless we work them. We will try to present a realistic picture of our own experiences in recovery. We trust this will shed light on the path ahead for others and, commu- and communicate in a direct and personal way how the program works for us. If it seems our feet are too much on the earth, that is because not one of us has ever worked the steps perfectly. The road was up and down, smooth and rocky. Sometimes we were surrounded by beautiful vistas. At others, we were in a fog and saw nothing but the placing of one foot in front of the other as we trudged ahead. At times, we experienced great joy. At other times, doubt, uncertainty, depression, and fear. At times, it seemed we were, ru- we were running with winged feet. At others, standing still, and still others, that we were losing ground. But we found that once on this road, something deep within told us it was the right path for us. We simply knew it, and that was enough to keep us going. Whatever our experience, we found it to be the greatest adventure of our lives. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Okay, there's a couple of things I want to point out here. Um, on page 77, the first thing is the very explicit relationship between the SA Fellowship and the AA Fellowship. Um, apparently, in some parts of the, of the country, there are SA groups where they have the um, approach that we don't use AA books. We're not alcoholics. Um, and that's certainly, you know, every group is free to approach sobriety as as they do. But my sponsor points out often um, that um, that's not consistent with what the essay literature says. The essay literature says that the big book and the 12 and 12 are the basic texts. And this section is not intended to replace them, but really to uh, help us put them into action as as sexaholics. Um, That being said, um, the reverse could also be done where people ignore the essay literature and focus only on the AA literature. And I really think that, uh, in my experience, the best recovery comes when we use all of the tools available to us. Um, The beginning of the second uh, paragraph, everything begins with sobriety. Um, The rest of that paragraph has some great stuff. I think that first sentence is often overlooked, and that is recovery begins with sobriety. Um, without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. That's what it says. So, And then it goes on to say, but, without reversing the deadly traits, so it's saying abstinence is not enough. Um, 
but but that statement, everything begins with sobriety, is true for me. When I look at my life leading up to August the 5th, 2002, actually that was 12 years ago, not 13 years ago when I when I when I um, uh, was at my sentencing hearing. When I look at my life leading up to that time, um, it, it's it was a life based on wrong attitudes, self-obsession, separation, false connections, blindness, and spiritual death. And um, abstinence alone won't fix all that. And that's what this is saying. But sobriety is where it started for me. I couldn't make any progress with um, with my uh, mental illnesses, uh, with my debt, with my relationship, uh, uh, you know, destruction that my disease wreaked uh, in, in, in my life and others. Um, I, could, I couldn't deal with any of that without sobriety. And, and sobriety was the beginning of, of my program of recovery. Um, there's another thing in that uh, paragraph that I harp on, the word based, based on. That word is a very important word. If you are uh, if you are trying to learn something, the basis is the most important part. It's the part everything else is based on. Now here he's talking about a life based on wrong attitudes, but the word basis will occur in the literature in reference to building a program of recovery in the big book in numerous places. So that's very important. That's the kind of thing that I learned from my AA sponsor to look at the literature with a fine-tooth comb. You know, th- this these words are not kind of randomly chosen. There's not that too many too many of us I think read it like a newspaper and then throw it away. Um, the folks that I know that have good solid recovery, you know, often uh, make discoveries reading this stuff. You know, I've I got a friend in Nashville who's always coming back and, and, and telling me, actually he, he gave a talk here uh, uh, last year, I think. Brad and Vicky came last year? Yeah, Brad, Brad uh, often tells me things out of the white book, for instance, or, or the big book that I had read and heard lots of times. But, but he has, you know, they've encountered him in a place that really spoke to him in his life. And when he tells about that, that helps me a lot. Um, good recovery comes out of looking at the process and really engaging in the process. Uh, my old sponsor, Scott, told me that there is a fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm an alcoholic also, and there is a um, program. They're not the same thing. The fellowship, you only need to do one thing to, to enter the fellowship, and that is have a desire to stop drinking. For SA, it's a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. You do that, you're a member of the fellowship. You are if you say you are. Now, the program, you know, is actually a secret what the program is. And one of the ways I would explain to me that they keep it a secret is by the, they read it at almost every meeting. 
On page 59 of the big book, it says, here are the steps we have suggested as a program of recovery. The program is the process, and it's not as simple as joining the fellowship. It requires just changing everything, you know, and um, really nothing changes except me when I do that. But that is everything. Um, okay, um, so this was uh, a, a place to, page 77 was to talk about that, uh, especially the, the, the nature of the AA literature. And now, uh, so, so by the way, anything that is approved by the General Service Conference of AA is approved for use in our fellowship as is. Now, if you want to change alcoholic to sexaholic or alcohol to lust, I mean, that's okay. But it's approved for use as is, for study. For studying the spiritual program of Alcoholics Anonymous and learning how to adapt it to SA. Okay, back to page 63. Um, this is step zero. And this is called getting started. And if you are having trouble uh, getting sober and staying sober, don't don't get off of this part until until you can go through here and say, yes, I've done this. I've done that. I'm doing that. And if you're still doing all of those things and, and still having trouble, well, then, you know, maybe there's something else that we need to look at. But certainly, you know, at least do a thorough inventory of this stuff. And that's what I want to I want to do here. Um, let's let's. Um, I would like to, uh, I'd like us to read through this uh, like a meeting, um, I guess. I'm trying to figure out what the best way to do that is. Um, why, 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 don't, why don't we, I get away from that little preaching booth. Maybe we can set up a circle. Is it a good time for me to stop being a preacher? Lest I become an expert. will get me if I don't if I don't watch it if I don't let God if I don't get God and you watching it for me helping me watch it because I got this disease all right who would like to start reading on page 63 I'm Lisa Kavala getting started step zero there is an unwritten step underlining all 12. We'll call it step zero. We participated in the fellowship of the program. No one seems able to stay sober in progress and recovery without it, though some try. For most of us, without associating in some way with other recovering individuals, there is no lasting sobriety and none of the fringe benefits of recovery, growth, freedom, and joy. This holds true even for loners, those without groups. We don't try to explain this. It is simply a fact. Okay. Um, how did the founder of this fellowship do that? Anybody know? Who was the founder? Roy. Roy. Where did Roy live? 
California. He went to a bunch of AA meetings. That's right. That's right. He went to a lot of AA meetings. In 1974, he read an article in Time magazine about AA. He had just been praying about his insane um, uh, you know, addiction to, to sex, which you can read about in uh, the first uh, part of this book. Um, and so he went to AA very soon after reading that. And that is how our fellowship began. Which is another thing that goes back to page 77 about the relationship with AA. Okay. Continuing. Any, by the way, anybody else has a comment, please say it, just like our other study groups. We begin by meeting regularly with other members. If there is no group where we live, we start one ourselves. Even if it's a meeting with only one other member, fellowship is that crucial to our recovery. We can't do it alone. We pray to be led to another sexaholic who will want to hear our story. Then we follow all leads that come to our attention. We contact the SA Central Office for any contacts there may be in our area and ask for materials and know-how. See Part 3, Appendix 3. Many groups have started in just such a manner. Long distance may separate members at first, but some travel more than 100 miles to meet with others. Is that willingness to go to any length? Yep. Willing to go 100 miles. <laughs> Commit yourself to your group, whether it is being formed or whether it is being formed or is operating, but still small. Attend every meeting on time. This ensures maximum benefit to you and the group, which cannot have continuity without regular participants. The measure of such commitment will be the measure of your recovery. Now, see, that would be a good, good paragraph for a topic discussion in a meeting, especially that part about being on time. And then when the person comes in and asks what the topic is, you can say tardiness, and you're not joking. <laughs> um, why is that important? What does it look like to commit myself to my group? What does that mean? Whether it is being formed or is operating but still small. We step zero. We participated in the fellowship of the program. That's what we're talking about. What does commit yourself look like? How many of us just show up and go home? I have noticed and the tendency I have often been judgmental about it, which is not good. Um, I have worked on that. Um, but I have noticed that sometimes in the energy of the meeting, there is a tendency to start late and finish early. Usually we do not finish early. I mean, start early and usually we do not finish late. To me, I'm suspicious of that. I'm not, uh, that doesn't strike me as something that's coming from recovery. Um, and I think when, there's a subtle message that I give myself when I, you know, show up late and, and kind of cut the corners. Um, what I, what I want to do when I commit myself to the group is treat it like it's something important. I mean, there's all kinds of good reasons for me to do that. And, and, this, and that does happen. In our fellowship, we, we do. I mean, there are people who, who are sober. These meetings are here 
you know, because people are committed to these groups. Uh, and, you know, the thing about attending meetings on time, I'm not, I'm not on time to every meeting. And I often have said the only meeting I was late to was my first one. You know, and I was 20 years late to that. Um, and there's some truth to that. You know, it's it's never too late for me to go to a meeting. <laughs> it's like, oh, I need a meeting. Oh, it's already 15 minutes into it. It's too late. So it's, no, it's not. I get there before the closing prayer. And, you know, that now, is that how I should? No, that's not how I should attend meetings. That's just, you know, if it's not an excuse, you know, for me, you know. to So... As an ideal, you know, which I am imperfect and I do not always achieve, but I do believe in, in being on time to the meeting because when I do that, I send a message to myself that this is an important activity. I mean, when I show, when I show up late to something, I mean, whether I intend to or not, I, I'm in, you know, for myself as well as for others, I'm making a statement. You know, about how important it is. If I show up, you know, 10 minutes late to a movie, you know, it's like, well, I don't really care that much about the beginning. You know, if I realize this movie's really important to me, I'm not going to miss the first 10 minutes. So, so it says here, the measure of such commitment will be the measure of your recovery. You get out what you put into it. Actually, my sponsor pointed out that he disagrees with this statement. The measure of such commitment will be the measure of your recovery. He and I have experienced this too. I get out much more than I put into it. You know, I get way more. As Scott used to say, you know, I'm overpaid for what it, anything I do for this program. I get way more back, and it's and it's. And I invite you to try to outgive God. He will not let you win. He will not get in debt to you, I promise. The more you try to do it, the more in debt you will be. And you will love it. So, anyway. So, tell me this. Say you're a newcomer, and you've been to a few meetings, and you so you know you say well I I mean they they say these meetings are important I hear them saying that and I read this but I really don't like them and I'm going to go just because somebody told me to um, and I don't care and I really don't like to, to tell that I just relapsed yesterday so I'm going to get there ten minutes late so I don't have to say my sobriety <laughs> day. I mean how do you what do you, how do you get over an attitude like that? It's not, it's not a bad attitude. It's just, I think there's well, something that happens. Well, you know, I mean, the, the thing about recovery that's really simple is it's about the results. What results are you getting? How's that working for you? You know, is, is that helping you? And what, what's my motivation for that? Is, that? is that a pursuit of recovery that's leading me to, to, to act that way? You know, if that's my, if that's my approach... Is it recovery? Is it my recovery that, that saying, well, I don't want to go in there and say I relapsed? You know, I mean, each individual can ask themselves what the problem is. Um, but I used to think I feel, felt shame because of other people's attitudes. 
And the truth is I felt shame because of my own actions. I was doing things that were shameful. Now, part of my disease is in not paying for it. It's like a credit card. I want to do things and not have consequences for doing those things. And so I got good at that. I got good at doing shameful things and then kind of pushing the shame away to where I didn't have to feel it. But that didn't mean it was going away. And if the truth is, is when I come into a place where I'm confronted with the truth about what I've done, well, then there the shame is. Now, I can blame the truth for making me ashamed, but the truth is not to blame. You know, and, you know, blame, you know, that word blame, you know, without my, without divine help, without your help, I will beat myself up with the truth. I will blame myself. You know, I, that's why I'm trying so hard to blame you. Because I can't survive my own judgment. And I've got to have your help with that. So, but when was I willing? You know, what did it take for me to be willing? I had to be at the point of suicide enough to where I was willing to disclose to a professional in a group of people that I had committed crimes, you know, of a very serious nature, with full knowledge that those crimes would be reported and that I would have to face some unknown consequence for them. I was willing to do that. Many people have said, oh, you know, that's great, and, you know, la-di-da, and give me attaboy for that, like, like that. That's, you know, and, and I, that's been helpful to me. But the truth is, I was desperate. That's why I did that. Not because I had some, you know, uh, streak of nobility that caused me to do it. I did that because I was too chicken to do anything else. I knew I couldn't handle playing that. I just wasn't good enough at the con game. I had to believe it myself, and I knew that, I, that there was no getting, there's no way getting away from this. I can lie if I believe it myself, if I convince myself. But if I have it, and uh, man, I can't play poker at all. You know, I mean, a five-year-old could just take my take my house from me in, in, in poker because I don't have a poker face. Um, so that's really why I did it. And the only reason I experienced uh, a change of attitude is because, you know, out of desperation, I followed a few simple actions that were given to me and you and God you know brought that change God used you uh, to bring about that change in me and so how to, how to get someone else one thing one thing is is that as a sponsor or even as a group you know I'm a human power we're a human power probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism or sexualism but God could and would if he were sought and I had to be willing to seek him. I had to be willing to go to any length. What was any length for me? Now, maybe for one person who's driving 100 miles. I've seen people who drive 100 miles to a meeting, and that's not enough. I knew one guy was doing it because he was afraid of getting seen in his hometown. And he was willing to do that, but there was other things he was not willing to do, and it didn't work for him. You know, I know other people who, who may have been willing to to turn, I do know people who have been willing to turn themselves in like I was, and that was not 
what they needed to do. There's a story about a you know a rich young ruler and what he needs to do. Give away everything he owns. That's what he needs to do. That somebody else may be willing to do that, and it's, but it's not what they need. To, it's not the sticking point for them. I don't know what the sticking point is for someone else. Maybe it's wearing a suit and getting up. Maybe, you know, there's one guy who is talking about step three in AA speaker. I love AA speakers. I highly recommend. Listen to to how you know people with long term sobriety got sober. Um, you know, especially if you're looking for a way. To hear the thing that's going to save you, knowing that my mind is what's going to stop me, my my attitudes is what's going to stop me from hearing the thing that that will save my life. And if I'm aware of that, then I can seek for God's help in hearing what I'm supposed to hear. Then listen to those things, spend the time. Um, it's that important. But there's this one guy named Ralph who who was talking about the. Uh, Going through the steps for the first time with a sponsor, you know, he just, you know, had a few months of sobriety, and and he, um, how'd it go? He said, you know, you're supposed to think well. It says before you make the third step decision, you're supposed to think think about it, think well, make sure you're ready to do it. And he was thinking about it, and he was not liking what he was, you know, his thoughts. And so his sponsor, he talked to his sponsor about it, and he said, you know, I'm worried that if I turn my life over to God. Then I have to go stand on some street corner in a brown suit and pass out literature, knock on people's doors, go to order door and stuff like that. And the sponsor listened to him and he said, "Ralph, from where you are right now, that would be a step up." <laughs> <laughs> and you got, you know, I had to be, I had to get to the point where. Coming into SA and doing what y'all suggested was a step up for me. Now, what does that take? I don't know. But it was a step up for me, for me to come in here and and wear rubber bands like this on my wrists so that I always had it in front of me that I'm sick. I need major help. Um, by the way, I brought some of these in case anybody wants any. But um, uh, I was told, and don't do this if you if you have problems with self mutilation. It's not it's not right for everyone. But I was told when I have a lust thought, very lightly do that, just so it stings barely, and say a prayer at the same time. And the, the thing of taking an action when I say the prayer empowers it. I can't explain. For me, it empowers it. When I take a small action. I heard an uh, old-timer in Nashville talk about this. He was in a conference with, with somebody that was triggering the dickens out of him. He couldn't leave the conference. He found that when he took his chair, and let's say the person's over there, and he turns it a quarter of an inch that way, away from that person, that broke the obsession. I mean, he was praying like mad already. You know? and, and as soon as he took that little action that nobody else could notice away, then... He was he was relieved of the obsession, you know, for that moment in time. So something like this, you know, can be very important. Now, the reason I wore two of them, I'll tell you how screwed up I was, or I'll, you you still won't understand <laughs> unless you were there. Um, but I was told about the rubber band, and I was so terrified that this is I was scared to death. You know of what was going to happen to me, but but the thing that I was scared of the most was relapsing. 
That's one of the reasons I stayed sober during that time. I was scared to death of relapse. And um, that made me willing to do a lot. Um, that was kind of a healthy fear. That might have been the beginning of restoration sanity. I wouldn't say I was sane by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, and I still wouldn't. Um, but progress, you know. Um, I wore two of these because I was afraid I might be away, you know, out doing things and the, the one would break. And because the rubber band had broke, that I would relapse. And so I, I started wearing two. I'm serious. That is why I wore two. Um, a couple years later, I just kept wearing them. I just kept wearing them. And one of my you know guys used to sponsor me said, Steve, you got like two years sobriety now. You know, you can probably get rid of the rubber bands. And I took them off. You know, follow my sponsor's instructions. And, you know, they were off for a few days, and, and one day I was going into a meeting, and I just felt wrong. I just realized, you know, I don't feel right without the rubber bands on. And as I decided to put them back on, as I put them back on, I realized that these are the handcuffs that I don't have to wear. And, uh, you know, I went and explained that to my sponsor, and he said, okay. And... Um, so today, they still have that significance for me. Um, but this, this, you know, am, am I obsessed with recovery? You know, I mean, I've got all this fixation with rubber bands and the suit and all this stuff. You know, maybe I am. And that's a much better quality of obsession than the obsessions that I had uh, 15 years ago. You know, if I'm going to be obsessed, then recovery is the right thing for me to be obsessed about you would not like me before I was obsessed with recovery. I don't know. You might have liked me, but you wouldn't. I don't know. You might have been sick enough to like me. But, but um, yeah, that I, I, could not be, I could not stand who I was before. Um, this, this is the right, the right way for me, for me to do it. And it might not be right for you, but if you're not willing to do it, you know, it could, it could be the, the, the end of you. This, this disease can kill us. Okay, I've been blabbing for how long? long well, time. No, but I want to talk for a second. Okay. I, you know, how it happened for me in this section, I've got different sections of being sober over the last 33 years. But in this last, in this eight-year section that I'm, that I'm in right now, I had, I had surrendered my medical license and that was the most important thing to me in the world, was to get it back. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I needed to become involved in particularly SA when it came to Memphis rather than SLAA because somebody at Gentle Path had told me that you need SA, anything short of that, you, it's just not going to be good enough for you. You need all the boundaries you can, you know, you just need that. that. And... Um, and so it, it came here, and and so I began coming to these meetings. Somebody tell me what the topic is. What? That was topic. Tardy. Tardiness is the topic. Yeah. It is. Yeah, we are talking about tardiness. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, so I, I came because I wanted to get my license back. And, um, and I needed to be seen, and I needed to do the stuff and get into the deal because... They were going to be, you know, checking, checking on me, and they were going to be doing polygraphs, and they were going to be doing all this stuff. And um, 
And so, uh, and so for the first little while, I came for that. And then, um, I don't know what happened, but I think what it was, was that God gave me that goal to get me plugged in to where that goal didn't matter anymore, that that was just secondary, and if it happened, it was okay, and if it didn't happen, it was okay, and that I, I became willing to go to any length and to do whatever the next right thing was to stay sober because uh, that's just what I needed to do. I mean, I needed to have a complete psychic change, and, and staying sober was part of part of that. And so it was kind of like faking it till I made it or acting as if or thinking, you know, you can think yourself, acting myself into right thinking, I believe is what, is, is what happened. It was a slow, a slow deal. Uh, and, and so, I, you know, I came to a point where I found out that, that the license thing probably wasn't going to happen. And, 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 and it was okay with me. It was, it, was, it was weird. I mean, it was really okay with me. That that was you know whatever whatever I'm gonna I'll do something else, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm obsessed maybe with this recovery stuff now, and I'm gonna keep on doing this because it's not I really like the freedom of when I when I can't don't have to get a license to I mean it's not my I don't have to wake up worrying about that today you know that's just kind of the way it happened for this 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 last section. That's all I got. Thanks, James. Thank okay. So, we've been talking about committing to our group. What does that mean? How do we treat our involvement in the group as, it, as if it's something important? And um, being on time is one thing. Um, there are many others. Part of the reason uh, that, that we're going through this like this, I said this once, I'll say it again, is that this part called getting started you know, contains a lot of things that can easily be overlooked. They could be thought of as instructions. Commit yourself to your group. That's an instruction. Attend every meeting on time. That is an instruction. And, uh, you know, if you're struggling, you may try... Following some of the, see if you're, there's any of these instructions that you're, you know. Now, this is not a legalistic thing. It's not about saying, oh, if you don't, you know, if you miss an instruction, you're going to get struck dead. But look at the patterns of your own behavior and, and, and see, uh, what, see, see if you can find anything in here that's like you haven't been willing to do so far, maybe. Maybe that's the thing. Um, the first meeting I ever attended in recovery. I attended one meeting in, when I was in medical school because it was required for the psychiatry rotations. As an observer, I went to an open AA meeting. But the first meeting I attended in recovery was in a treatment center, a van with a little plastic wristband on my wrist uh, with a bunch of guys. And we were all singing Kumbaya on the van over there on the way to the meeting. And it was a speaker meeting. And this lady had six years. And she told about her recovery. And she told about her early sobriety when she was just started to get sponsored. And she was, you know, I, mean, I don't know, she might have had a relapse or two. And, you know, she was very 
ill-tempered. And um, the, the sponsor one day, you know, I guess just decided that she needed some help with her willingness. So she said, what, how do you put your shoes on, shoes and socks on in the morning? You put in one sock and one shoe, and then the other sock and the other shoe, or do you put on two socks and then two shoes? And she told her which one it was, and the sponsor said, okay, I want you to change it to the other way. And she was like, uh, uh, probably said something similar to, to Zachary. And, uh, <laughs> and, and um, uh, you know, that's a bunch of blah, blah, blah. And um, the, the uh, you know, the sponsor said, you know, what are you willing to do? You know, you, the way you're living is not working too well. You know, do you want to keep doing it? Do you really want to keep doing it the way you do it? You know, why, why, if you're not willing to change that, what what are you willing to change? You know, it's like I don't think I can help you. Click. Well, the next morning she got up and she put on her socks and shoes the other way. Called her sponsor and said she did it. Now what else? She was still ill-tempered as the Dickens, but that was the first. That was the beginning of her willingness, and that made a huge impression on me. I don't remember very much else about that meeting, besides that one thing. That made a huge impression on me. There is one guy that I sponsored that I gave that instruction to. <laughs> He's still sober. He did it. He 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 wasn't he wasn't too impressed with the instruction. You know, it's just like what page of the big book is that on? <laughs> Another guy was told that he had to get a haircut. He had his hair, hair, you know, kind of hippie-ish. Sponsor told him he had to get a haircut. And he said, you know, and that's what he said. He said, well, you know, that's not in the big book. He's like, and and he wasn't sure it wasn't in the big book, but he says he's pretty sure there's not a chapter to the barber or whatever. (laughs) But, but, you know, it's like he got the same sort of speech from his sponsor. It's funny how, you know, you know, sponsors come up with these things, you know. My, my, uh, my, uh, Scott jokes about sponsor school where they teach you all these things. It's just like, you know, this sort of thing is the sticking point where we really get stuck on stuff like this. Just little stupid stuff. And it's about self-will. But, um, okay, so let's continue on page 64. We have any volunteers? Thank <clears throat> you, we also use telephone meetings with two or more members using the three-way calling feature available in many cities. Some members subscribe to discount long-distance phone service for considerable savings. Speaker phones enable a loaner to sit in remotely. We augment this by letter writing and attending other types of 12-step meetings, many of which are open to the public. Much benefit can be gained there in learning how to apply the steps in one's life and seeing how meetings are run. We cannot put this strongly enough Experience has shown us that we must be part of others or we cannot maintain effective surrender, see ourselves rightly, or work, or, or work the steps. Without regular participation in the fellowship, there seems to be no recovery. We stopped. Okay, yeah, now let's start that, stop, that, stop there for a second and talk about the whole step zero section. What's it about? Fellowship. Yeah. Participation. What are the instructions of what we just read? Commit yourself. Yeah. No, the, no, the paragraph that we just, the two paragraphs we just read. 
use telephone meetings. Is this a plug for the phone company? Now, this is this is important. He's using every resource available to him. When he wrote this, you know, there was a fellowship, but it was spread out, spread out all over the place. There were lots of places where there was just one or two people trying to get sober. And, uh, and that was all there was in a group. Um, so these are things that they tried. We augment this by letter writing and attending other types of 12-step meetings. So these are instructions, you know. And these may be things that, that will, you know, help, help, uh, help you guys if you haven't tried them. We cannot put this strongly enough. That's one of those things that, you know, it's just kind of like bold, star. I mean, it's like there's a, there's a couple lines in the big book where it says, above everything. Now, how important is that? And I was like, this, this looks to be pretty, pretty important. And we read over it. And if we read over it and don't, uh, you know, change anything about our behavior, it's like, you know, having a recipe for a cake and reading the recipe and expecting, you know, there to be a cake. You know, it's like the recipe is a series of instructions. You follow the instructions and then you have a cake. Um, and uh, that's, that's, that's what a program is. That's what a program of recovery is. So, participate in the fellowship. Now, I want to add that as good as eating out has been for me in Nashville and in uh, and in Memphis, you know, I don't eat out that uh, very rarely eat out anymore. Um, it's, it's not uh, with anyone. There's nothing personal against you guys. It's it's a financial thing, and it's a decision about about you know how to spend my time is also restricted. But but it's it's been very helpful. But I do want to uh, express my opinion that with regards to these things. Uh, Eating out at restaurants after the meeting is an outside issue. I've seen places where people do that a lot without recovery. One of the meetings I attended to in Nashville had on Friday night, everybody went out much like we do, and there was a large group of people. It had become a social club. There's a large group of people who were not interested in the SA fellowship. They were interested in the after-the-meeting fellowship. And so it's important to realize that those two things are separate, I think, in my experience. Okay. Next. We stopped. We stopped participating in our compulsion in all its forms. We cannot be sober in one area while acting out in another. There can be no relief from the obsession of lust while still practicing the acts of lust in any form. I can be masturbating to the image of a blank wall, and I'm still resorting to my drug. We stop feeding lust. We get rid of all the materials and other triggers under our control. We stop feeding lust through through the eyes, the fantasy, and the memory. We stop relishing the language of lust, resentment, and rage. We stop living only and always inside our own heads. One of the fringe benefits of going to a lot of meetings is that it gets us out of ourselves. What is the language of lust? Anybody? This is the kind of question that you want to ask yourself when you're reading that. So what does that mean? 
There's a lot more in that paragraph too. But that's that's an example of something. What is the language of lust? Anybody? Take a wild guess. I mean, is it just like language in general is just like kind of the way you think. You don't really, you know, most people at least don't read something and pick apart the sentences unless they're in an English class. And so it's just the mode of operation. It's This is how I live life. Um, I think it has a literal meaning. For me, it does. And and what it means is, what language do, do I use to express lustful thoughts? Yeah, we stop talking about blowjobs and pussy and things that's like right. That. That's right. That is the sort of stuff you'd read in a porn magazine. Yeah. You know, when we talk about anatomy, we use clinical terms rather than this kind of stuff that you know. Or, or even cutesy terms, you know. And it can be more subtle than that. I sponsored a guy in Nashville who attended one of Harvey's um, sessions and um, was talking about a what he called a cherished memory. A cherished memory. About something that happened in the summer, you know, sort of like you know, Greece, you know, uh, the movie Greece, not the not the country. Um, uh, and, you know, there had been this, you know, before his, or after his senior year, or whatever. There had been this, you know, relationship of the summer he'd had with this woman, and he had a cherished memory about it. And Harvey pegged him on it and said, "That is lust. That's the language of lust, right there. That that word, cherished memory." And, and once he got, he, he told me about this, and it made an impression on me. Um, it made a big impression on him. And and then he he told me some other stuff. He was at a PTA meeting once, his you know, for his daughter, and he caught himself thinking about how many gorgeous moms there were. And he recognized that word, gorgeous moms. That's language of lust. You know, lust hides in the way we express ourselves. You know, identifying that and changing the way we express. You know, things, I mean, it may be, you know, when I say, I don't talk about gorgeous people anymore. I really don't. It's not healthy for me. As soon as I do that, I'm sort of giving away my power and saying, you know, they have the ability to make me feel lustful. They don't have that ability. My mind has the ability to use that, you know, to create an invitation to lust for me. But it's all between my ears. And I give away my responsibility with words like that. Now, I know sexaholics with recovery who say stuff like that, and it doesn't get them in trouble. Um, but but I think we you know we should be careful about it, you know, because that's the sort of thing. That's how we talk about. It. That's how we protect our lust. That's how our lust insinuates itself into who we are. That that thing about language, yes, that's that becomes very, you know, personal. How we, how we speak. We don't think about it. We don't look it up in the dictionary. You know, we don't we don't get a grammar book out. But yeah, so it's there. I kind of got a little bit of a glimpse into it last weekend or whatever. You know, I use like a there's an app called Instagram where you can just kind of put photographs out there and you comment. Um, I like it. I like to take photographs, but um, 
can get dangerous because you can like share different people. And I will find myself wanting to like use innuendos, things like that. It, there's a part of me that feels anonymous on in that forum. And um, came out last week. I um, my church did some special activity, and they they asked people. They said, "We want you to." Um, go out and take photographs and we want you to tag this with a particular hashtag and, and using Twitter and Instagram and um, I wanted to participate in it and I had to go back and look at previous stuff that I'd done previous photographs I'd taken that were just a little inappropriate or comments that I had in there that were just that weren't appropriate and all of a sudden when they, when the reality comes out that other people are going to see this people that I know are going to see this I find myself deleting stuff, you know, out of that, out of that um, history, and um, it's like, man, it's. It, I got a good look at <laughs> who I am at times, you know. It, it's still hanging around. It still hangs around. It comes up at work because I mean, I deal with sexual stuff at work every day, and every other girl in my section, every other person in my section is a woman, and. Part of me that wants to have conversations about the cases we're reading, you know, circumstances or the stories we're given. A lot of times they're real graphic, and it's easy to make comments. And um, whether you usually, I mean, it's kind of a coping mechanism, I assume. But I mean, we'll joke about it. We'll joke about some of those, the way things are worded or whatever, and um, it's. I can, um, I have to resist those subtle or not so subtle pulls to, to to, I guess to reinforce the sexual aspect of the dialogue or whatever so that other people, you know, just, just bring it up or make it bigger than it should be. Something like that. So, anyway. <coughs> Okay. More from the book? As we become aware of our other addictions that are part of our lives, we pray for willingness to surrender each one. There can be no true recovery from addiction if we allow it to proceed in any area, whether it's acting out. What we really, what we are really saying when we start meeting with others is, I have to stop, please help me. But we need some demonstration of trust in hearing the stories of other members. We begin to let our guard down. Before we know it, we've crossed the line of doubt, mistrust, and fear, and have put down our drug. The program doesn't tell us how to stop. We have done that a thousand and one times. It shows us how to keep from starting again. We had it backwards. Before, we always wanted the therapist, spouse, or God to do the stopping for us, to fix us. Now, we stop, and then, in our surrender, the power of God becomes effective in us. Okay. Thanks, Lee. Um, yeah. Technical sobriety, what does that mean? I hear people use it like... They were really lusting after a woman, but they didn't 
masturbate or have an orgasm or something. Or they were looking at porn for a little bit, but they didn't, you know, masturbate or whatever. I sponsored a guy in, in Nashville who had, was, you know, claiming six months of sobriety in, in a meeting, and he came in one day with, with his six months of sobriety and said that he had just been fired from work because he was looking at illegal pornography on the work computer. And he didn't know if he was going to be arrested. That's not sober. That's not sober behavior. So the definition, what is sex with self? What does that mean? And what is progressive victory over loss? What does that look like? That is what we have to ask ourselves. You know, we're, we're, we're pursuing sobriety. How does lust linger in our minds? The language, the images, the behaviors, the second looks, the swivel head thing. You know, the you know, oh, I wonder if that lady, that you know, that girl is working at Starbucks today, sort of thing. Well, if I wonder that, then I probably need to go to you know Cafe Republic, or whatever. And and the way that it helps me make decisions. Let you know. Try switching that around. I wonder if that coffee house next to that you know AA meeting is is open right now. You know. Um, willingness to surrender each one. All these different ways we start to stop practicing the compulsion in all its forms. No true recovery if we allow it to persist in any area, whether in our thinking or in our acting out. Um, so it doesn't tell us how to stop. It shows us how to keep from starting again. Stopped a thousand times. It's the starting back that's the problem. Okay. How do y'all feel? We've been at this over an hour. I keep going. I'm good. Sure. I'm all right. Okay. Volunteer? Yeah. You want to read? You ready to read? Oh, are you reading? Yeah. We get involved. At first, all that many of us could do was simply attend meetings. Forget the steps. Forget everything. Just bring the body, we were told. And bring the body we did, even if we had to drag it along, and even if the mind and will lagged far behind. But soon, we started sharing at meetings, telling our story, bringing the inside out. And we discovered that the way to feel better is not only going to meetings, but taking the risk of self-disclosure. Okay, I, I, my sponsor told me something about this that I want to share where, you know, she's talking about bring the body. You know, it says forget the steps, just bring the body. Um, Roy was a member of the Pacific group in uh, Los Angeles, the AA group called the Pacific group. This is a group that still meets on Wednesday nights. 
and has an average of attendance of about 1,100 people. There is a stage with a microphone where you share. And you have to have like about 25 years of sobriety to even get up on the stage. Okay, So it's what you might call a rather sober group. Uh, my sponsor pointed out that not all meetings are as healthy as that group. And Roy's experience at the beginning was just showing up. He got a lot out of just showing up. You know, before he worked the steps. He didn't know how to work the steps. He didn't know how to find a sponsor in AA. He could sponsor him through the steps. So, this thing about forgetting the steps, I would not take that as an instruction. Okay? <laughs> it is in quotations. And, uh, you know, we're talking about looking for instructions. I don't recommend that one. You know, for as, as you know, I do recommend bringing the body. And, and there may be some people, I've heard some people's stories that, they were not, you know, they were, they were totally, you know, straight out of the psych ward where they had been for like the last two years, you know, on these meds that caused them to walk around with a stare and shuffle. And maybe just showing up was the best that they could do. But uh, if you can, do the steps. Uh, start them quick. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. Inside my head, those problems seemed so hopeless. Just bringing them out into the light cut them down to size. We followed the suggestion of getting involved in the mechanics of meetings, helping set up, cleaning up, maintaining the literature, and being there for newcomers. Involvement made us feel we were a part of Quite a difference from that empty, lifeless feeling of being apart from. So, you know, it's actually, you know, fairly simple to get this meeting open. But it it does nobody any harm if you create, you know, a little work like you have a literature rack or something that, you know, setting up the chairs, you know, is, is, is something, you know. And, and, you know, people are good about doing that. But if there is anything, you know, that, that we can get involved in, that is positive. Even if, if the involvement is just like, ah, that's not really necessary. You know, we can get along without that. You're doing something for the group. I mean, like, you know, just watering the flowers. I don't know. You know? <laughs> that is what I was going to share. Okay. Along those lines, I started going to morning meetings recently, and uh, for a while I was just bringing my body there, and I would sleep through most of it because it was so early, and I don't take care of myself a lot with good sleeping habits. But um, someone um, started making coffee, and that's helped at least me, if not other people, stay awake. And so even though it was just kind of like a ah uh, well. People can make coffee at home or whatever. It helped the group. So, yeah, and and so taking responsibility for the coffee is 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 a healthy way to get involved. You know, being one of those people who shows up early so there's coffee ready when people walk in. Um, 
you know, before before I reached a certain point in my recovery, I just sort of took it for granted that the, there was going to be a group there that, that, that the meeting time, that the doors are going to be open. There's going to be, you know, a space. And some things have to happen in order for that to take the case, you know, to, to, be, uh, to be the case. And so getting involved in the group and sort of helping, you know, those things happen as a service to a group can be a very helpful thing. And, you know, it's like not everybody has a lifestyle that enables them to do that. But what was I willing to do in the service of my disease? You know, um, I look at my story, at the lengths I went to to pursue my disease, you know, the distances I drove, the money I spent, the time I spent, you know, cultivating these situations and these, you know, relationships and what whatnot. If I am willing to just give a tenth of my time, my money, my attention, my effort, you know, to, to my recovery, I get amazing results. And if I'm not, this is also comes to do with putting money in the basket. You know, I... You know, I don't want to guilt trip anybody, um, but I, I do want to say that I've been in my, the worst financial shape of my life during during my recovery. And I never fail to put a dollar in the basket if I have a dollar. And the reason for that is, is this, this thing about being committed to the group. You know, for me, it's it's an action. It's like it's like that little quarter of an inch turn. You know, and <clears throat> when I look at it, how, how how much I'm willing to spend a dollar on a you know a few dollars on you know uh, some Twinkies or you know crap you know something you know it's a piece of cake or um, uh, a movie or you know a DVD that I like. It's not that the you know. I think for me it's important for me the group and the, the fellowship it can help it can help them in ways that I may never see or understand or witness but it helps me it says to me this matters my contribution matters and and I and 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 it tells me kind of unconsciously reinforces the the thing that. I am committed to this group. Eighty um, percent of communication is nonverbal, and this is important for me because I can say things with my mouth and think that's where I'm at. But the other eighty percent of me is behaving. People used to used to, to notice this in my behavior. I would say, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm your friend. I'll help you out," and then. You know, Saturday morning came and you need help moving. It's just like, well, I couldn't make it. Sorry, I was willing to though. You know, and 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 my actions, you know, say a lot about what the real message I'm carrying. And that's a message I carry to myself. But it may also carry a message to someone else. Either the dollar gets in the basket and helps something happen. You know, uh, or or the um, the, um, you know, somebody sees uh, uh, what I do as an example, 
you know, if they see me withholding money, you know, they, they might see that and take that as an example. Um, you know, I got twenty dollars in my wallet, you know, but I don't feel like, you know, putting in a dollar today. Um, so anyway, everyone else ha has to come to their own. Like I say, you know, there's different sticking points what we have to be willing to do. I've seen people, you know, put, you know, twenty dollar bills in the basket and not not get recovery. So <laughs> there's no no formula. Um, but um, yeah. Anyway. Uh. Andrew Sexaholic. Uh, I remember, I think it was one of the first uh, meetings I came to, I'm not sure if it was SLAA or SA, but somebody made a good point of um, with your actions. Uh, what do you spend your time on? What are your actions? Because that's going to show you what your priorities are. Yes. And that's just, sometimes it seems like that's going through my head constantly, usually when my priorities are out of whack. And, uh, really been laid on me recently with what are my priorities you've been in the program for this long you're still relapsing what are your priorities your actions are saying masturbation and women are your priority that's the kind of honesty that addicts don't like I hate it <laughs> <laughs> Addicts will not appreciate you help being helpful to them by pointing stuff like that out. <laughs> that has saved my life. The truth, uh, you know, I need the truth. Where are we? Apart from? Yeah. Doing things, anything, got me out of myself and into the real world. It was from such simple beginnings that we could later feel more comfortable in meeting other members one-to-one -one and in going out after meetings. We began the painful but welcome process of growing up by coming out of ourselves. The fellowship of sobriety is where the action is, where the magic is, where the feeling of identification is, where the real connection is. We received or asked for we received or asked for the phone number of one or more members we could call or contact regularly. This seemed strange and unnatural to many of us until we discovered that was how many others got help to stay sober at first. Suddenly, I was worthwhile, as sick as I was. What dignity there is in that total acceptance. Okay. I read this with Bill um, recently. I got a little note in the margin. Uh, the going out after meetings thing, he says, this is not necessarily a good idea if nobody's sober. Um, uh, you know, what, you know, what should, what, how should I, how should I relate to people who, who aren't sober? You know, what, what did I need to do then? What do I need to do today? I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. I need to ask God that. You know, how should I in each situation? But what it is very similar to what Andrew said. Where do I tend to spend my time? You know, do I spend my time seeking out uh, the experience of sober people so that you know I can learn how to get sober and stay sober a day at a time, or do I prefer? 
to hang out with people who are kind of, you know, on the outside looking in. Um, you know, I love all you guys. You know, I, you know. But the truth is, my time is limited. Like I said, I don't feel it belongs to me. I'm supposed to do my best to spend it in a way that's helpful to others. If somebody has this disease or thinks they have coming around with this disease and they don't, you know, um, uh, you know, show the willingness to do what they need to do to get sober and stay sober. I, you know, that's me. I've got that disease. I've been there. I, I <laughs> and there's only so far I can go in getting into such a relationship. I found that if I get very close to people with this addiction, it's very painful. You know, <clears throat> when somebody is 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 doing living in a way that's self-destructive, and the group, the groups that we have here. The, we, had, we talk about the primary purpose. And somebody mentioned, you know, our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other sexaholics recover. Now, if you're in chronic relapse and you come around, you know, what, what's the best thing I can do to be helpful? Um, the truth like Andrew said, the truth will make any addict who's living in his addiction uncomfortable. So, if you are an addict living in your addiction, I hope you feel uncomfortable in these meetings. That I don't want anybody feeling uncomfortable, but I want these meetings to be about the truth. I find... That if I am truthful, there are people who come back, you know, uh, and there are people who do not. Um, and I've had people do different things at different times. I had some people, you know, um, you know, call and and ask ask for suggestions or feedback. And, uh, and then you know, then stop doing it. And I have other people who wouldn't get near me with a ten-foot pole, you know, change their mind and uh, start calling, and and different results. There's nothing magic about about my recovery. Um, uh, at least, there's nothing special about it in terms of recovery. I mean, there are people who are sober who have recovery. And God uses all of us in different ways uh, to the extent that we let Him. Our self-centeredness is the only thing that can get in the way. And I've still got plenty of work to do on finding out the next thing that I need to face and be rid of in myself. Um, but but I want I, I want this to be a place where people can recover. And hanging out with addicts who are using is what I did when I was using. And 
me personally, I had to make a radical break with who I associated with. I was very sick. You know, I, I'm not sure how useful it is to compare things, but uh, I needed a higher dose of recovery medicine than a lot of people I see need. I went to 500 meetings in my first year, not because I was trying to win a contest. I was trying not to die. I know people who have needed more than me, but a lot of people don't need to go to 500 meetings. And, and, and it took me a while to kind of <laughs> realize that and accept that. It was like, oh, you're not willing to go to 10 meetings a week? Well, you know, you're going to relapse. I was just like, well, no. A lot, of, a lot of people got sober and didn't go to 10 meetings a week. Um, so, um, but, um, yeah, I needed... And, and the truth is, is that when I'm an addict and I'm living according to my addiction, the truth is I am playing a losing game. I cannot win with that plan. And uh, I've got, I am too susceptible to the influence of others to be able to afford to hang out with, uh, you know, too many, to get too close to people who are in recovery. Not just because it hurts, I mean, who, who, are, who are not in recovery. Um, my brother is an example. You know, he's an alcoholic, you know, who has no drinking problem. And um, he's never going to have a drinking problem. I mean, he may die of hepati- alcoholic hepatitis, but he's never going to have a drinking problem. Um and and I I can only get so close to him. Um, and maybe that's something that I need to grow on. Uh, but I mean, he stays away from us. I mean, he doesn't want to get too close to us. So anyway, um, I'm gonna hush. Anybody got anything? You know, Mike, um, I don't know how I got sober, um, but looking back on those early days or whatever, you know, just, I had my ideas, I had what I was willing to do, it took me a while to get a sponsor, I don't know why I did that, I don't know why, I was... Maybe I was embarrassed of coming in the meetings and having a couple of days or um, everybody else. It was one of Tuesday nights. It would be Steve and Jim and Walt and Frank, typically. And then them were struggling like I was. It pissed me off a little bit. Maybe. <laughs> or just, well, maybe I was, my ego was getting the best of me, but... I wanted to do that one meeting a week for a long time, um, and you know, I can't remember what I was doing when I started getting sober. I think I'd picked up Friday nights. It was just kind of a progressive, you know, put my toe in the water, go out where the waves are crashing in just a little bit more, or something like that, you know. But it was everything was painful. Um, picking up a second meeting a week was painful. Going out and getting dinner with some people so that there was a chance that I might be known a little bit more was painful. Um, 
When I got 30 days, somebody handed me a box. <laughs> that was painful. <laughs> and it, all of this was flying in the face of my self-will, you know. Um, I wanted to be able to do it on my terms and still do what I wanted to do. And, um, yeah, a box at 30 days, probably around four months. I got the email address and phone number. Didn't want to do that. I remember everybody in the interview group just kind of looking at me with shitting grins. And, um, you know, because I didn't have any say in it. But I was sitting there and everybody decided that I was going to be the communications chair. But the thing is, I mean, more so with that especially, I remember after doing it for a little number one, it didn't take up that much time like I thought it might. And when it did, I kind of liked it. I kind of liked having that um, interaction with people who were coming in. And, um, you know, it's just that everything after that. It's like everything that's happened in this program, every step that I've been willing to do, it was not something that I gladly, a step that I gladly took. And... Um, but I can see the benefit of all of it, you know. All of it was kind of sabotaging my agenda and um, ended up having some payoff that I wasn't expecting. And, um, you know, it wasn't always convenient to have the box. If I, something came up and I wasn't going to be able to make the Tuesday meeting, then I had to find somebody else who was, you know. And so it... All of that work was... It was a commitment to the group to make sure that they were taken care of and getting outside of myself. It was creating more relationships that I had not had time for or had not been open to up to that point. Um, you know, those, those phone calls early on that I didn't want to make ended up being really good. You know, ended up connecting with guys, ended up being at one of them's wedding, you know didn't see that stuff coming. I don't think I'd been in anybody's wedding up to that point. I'm pretty sure I hadn't. Um, you know, just life started filling out and and none of those things were things that I would have chosen for myself. And um, I don't know. That's what happened. <clears throat> Thanks, Lawrence. Thank you, Lawrence. Sorry. I'm going to have to uh, finish up here pretty soon. Does anybody have any any remarks or comments or thing they want to share? Robert, in case you don't know, we're being recorded. So, if you share your... Yes. Zachary was surprised <laughs> to find that out. <laughs> All right. Shall we put a bookmark there? And uh, I mean, we'll close with a prayer. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. 
Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you.